going to be in Hebrews 13, verses 8 through 13. I think that's as far as we're going to get tonight, and then next time we will finish up the book of Hebrews. So, um, yeah, we will. We will indeed. So, um, we're going to begin here in verse 8 where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And this is one of those verses that is just in my mind a lot. Because in a society that is constantly trying to um, uh, change who God is, change what His Word says, um, change him into just a loving God or just a God of wrath. It is important that we understand who he is according to the, the Bible, the, the beginning, because he does not change. And I think a lot of people feel that there is a God of the Old Testament and there is a God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was this harsh God, the God of the New Testament is this loving God. This verse will completely destroy that philosophy. There is only one God, always has been, always will be, and He does not change. Um, Hebrews 1.12. What's fascinating about this is this is just more than just the statement of God doesn't change. This is a statement of saying who Jesus is. It's a statement saying, Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. And we know that because if you go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12, he, he began the way he's starting to end. Where he said, like a cloak you will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail, speaking of God. Saying, God is the same. And now he's saying, Yeshua, Jesus does not change. So he's saying, therefore, Yeshua is God. One of many, 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 many verses we could give you to show you that uh, this, this basic same truth, ultimately. Now, Malachi 3, verse 6 is another one that kind of goes along this. It is always in my mind as well, where it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Notice... Old Testament, and he's saying, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed, implying his love does not change. In the Old Testament, God is not this God of wrath and hate. He is still a God of love, just as he is in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, God isn't just a God of love, but a God of wrath, just as God is in the Old Testament. We see in Romans, he talks about God is, Jesus is going to be the one who will judge you. And so, important to understand that. It's not like we have two different dispensations of who God is. He has always been the same and always will be. And you'll understand why that is important here. So, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one in John... I think that's where it was. It is the same thing that he's saying here. Jesus is God. Neither one of them change. Uh, 
So keep that in mind as you look at this verse because I do think it is vital for um, the doctrine, a foundational doctrine of Christianity that he does not change. His word, which is what Jesus is, does not change according to our culture. There are so many times that I have heard people say, well, back then they did this, and back then it was this. No, God's word is not determinant upon culture. I hear it a lot, especially when it comes to homosexuality, that, well, back then it was a bad thing, but now it's accepted, and it, no, God does not change. His view on it does not change. Okay, so anyway, homosexuality is sin. Islam is a lie. Abortion is murder, and it always has been. God always will, always has loved the homosexual. He wants to offer forgiveness to them. He died on the cross for them, but he will not tolerate their sin. Likewise, those who have abortions, he loves them. He calls out to their hearts. He, he wants to heal them, but there is judgment upon sin still. So you cannot mix those two things together. Um, there's also a, a theology out there called cessationalism. And that basically means this, that the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles and, and whatnot at the time of the New Testament, at the apostolic age, but then it fades away because it was only for that time. And I kind of think that this says no, because the Lord does not change. He always is and always will be the same. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit was there for them at that time, the Holy Spirit will be here for us in this time as well. That it does not cease because it always is. Now, we could do a whole Bible study on this alone. I am not saying that everything that goes on in churches today with the Holy Spirit is good. Because I do not believe everything that's going on in churches today is from the Holy Spirit that is being given credit to him. I think there is a lot of unholy spirit in the church. Because as there is an anti-Christ, an anti-God, there is an anti-Holy Spirit. We see that in the book of Revelation. We see it in our churches today. There is an anti-Christ spirit denying the, the divine aspect of God. There is an anti-Holy Spirit. Everything God does, the devil mimics. He's, Jesus is called the morning star. So is the devil. Okay? Jesus is the light. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Virtually everything. God is a trinity. He's a trinity, as we see in Revelation. Literally everything. Satan tries to corrupt the truth. And that's why we have to have such a discerning spirit and know the word of God so that you do not get deceived. Because it's easy to get deceived. Because it looks good, sounds good, feels good. Uh, it, it makes sense, but it's not biblical, then it's not of God. And that is uh, just where it takes wisdom, discernment, and understanding of God's word to decipher that sometimes. And I'll admit there are times I don't even know if I can decipher it sometimes, so I just have to sit and wait. And I just sit back 
and am cautious because I don't know. I just don't know. But nonetheless, we need to be on our guard. If it does not line up with Scripture, then you know for sure. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Great verse to back that up. So, Mark 8, 1 kind of says this, In those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. Now there's a few interesting things that I see about this. First of all, if God does not change, then that means he has compassion on us today too. He has not forgotten us. He has not left us alone. He'll never leave you, never forsake you, and he still has that compassion. Now, it's interesting that when Israel was leaving Egypt, you might recall that the Israelites were saying, you know, he brought us out of Egypt to let us die here in the, in the wilderness. And that was a misrepresentation of God's character right there. And for us to say that of today, of all the craziness that's going on in the world, and say, where is God in all this? Where is he? Is the same misrepresentation of God's character. If we're not living in hope and in victory right now, with all that goes on in the world, we are misrepresenting God's character just like they did in the wilderness. You have to know the authentic to recognize the evil. I was just this week doing a video for some kids and I give this as an illustration. You need to know the voice of God. When you know the voice of God, then you recognize when it's not His. So if all of a sudden this is what I sounded like when I came in here tonight, you would know that something's not right because, so, sorry, they hit me in the head. Anyway, you would know because you know what my voice is supposed to sound like. And that's the way it is when I say, when people are starting to talk about millions of years or a different definition of love, it ought to sound really wrong to you because you know my voice. You know what it's supposed to sound like. And the only way to know God's voice is to know his word. So that's just sulfur hexafluoride in case you're wondering. So, But anyway. So anyway, um, we just need to be careful that we don't misrepresent God's character. And we do so when we doubt his love, when we change the definition of his love. Okay, uh, we've talked about many, there, there's so many ways that we can misrepresent the character of God. And if you don't know your word well and take it into context, that's exactly what we do. And so, just dangerous. Mark continues here. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to them and he said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now what's interesting is at least from the text, there is absolutely no indication that they were complaining about it. I think if they wanted to, they could have gone home. But they have chosen throughout these three days, even though they've had nothing to eat, they were choosing what was better in following Christ, to hear his words. They were willing to give the, the flesh a beating to give the spirit a feeding. 
And I think that's important here. Um, it kind of reminds me, it's the antithesis of what I've been talking about with these Seder meals, is that when Israel left Egypt, they went three days without food and water. And what did they do? They complain against God. Did he just bring us out here to die? And what I say in the, when I do the Passovers is, this is why today Jews say that we are never to go three days without being in Torah. Because they see water as a picture of the word of God. And so they always meet on Saturday. They read Torah in the synagogues on Monday and Thursday. Because if we go three days without the word, we might complain and grumble against God. So that's why they do that. And here we see that same comparison. Now they've been going three days, but there's no evidence of complaining. Whereas in Israel, when they meet, they come to the waters of Marar, bitter, and they're disappointed. They get sick and all this. Well, then there, there's a stick, you know, Moses throws in, the water becomes sweet. It's a picture of Jesus. Well, here... The same thing, what happens is there's sweetness that comes, but it's coming from the compassion of God and nothing but. I wonder, had those people in Israel not complained, not grumbled, I'll bet they would have come and I'll bet those waters would have been sweet right away. I don't know, I'm just guessing, but quite possible. But I think that these are the kind of people that, that are going to see the compassion of God more readily you might say. People who aren't worried about the flesh, but are happy to just be with Jesus. To be content with what he has given us and not always looking for more. So, God knows our needs. We don't have to grumble. We don't have to complain. He knows what we need. And he is, because he does not change, going to have compassion on you. Verse 3 continues, he says, If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on their way. For some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Notice that wilderness again. I really believe he's trying to take them back to that moment. It, because as far as we know, this is around the Sea of Galilee that this is taking place. Now you guys have been to the Sea of Galilee. That's not the wilderness, or some of you, that's not the wilderness. Okay, it's far from it. But it, he seems to be directing them to the, the Exodus there a little bit. The other thing that I find fascinating is... Who has the doubts that God is going to have compassion or is able to deliver? The disciples. Last week in our post-Bible study Bible study, we were talking about um, the resurrection. And something that, I don't remember if it was Daniel Joseph or who it was, but that I had never caught before was this. The disciples were the ones that did not believe in the resurrection. They run to the tomb. They find it empty. They're like, 
What? They don't even believe the women at first. Like, I'm not going to believe, you know, Thomas. I won't believe unless I get to put my hands in there. They are the doubters. But yet you go and look at the Pharisees. And what did the Pharisees do? They went to Pilate and said, we heard this man say that after three days he would rise again. So we want you to put some soldiers there so that they, you know, uh, the disciples can't, you know, come and, you know, basically say that he rose from the dead after they steal his body. They grasped the concept of what Jesus was saying. Maybe they didn't believe it was going to happen for sure, but either way, they understood Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, but his own disciples missed that. They seemed to be surprised by it. In this picture, we kind of see some of that same disbelief. It's the disciples, those who are walking with him, who are missing it, and the people who are out there in the wilderness who really have their flesh in submission, there's no evidence of them complaining or having any doubts that they're in trouble. Or not in trouble, I should say. So I just find that a little bit fascinating to me. Why is it that those that are closest to Jesus oftentimes have the least faith? If we look in the world right now, I find it fascinating that the demonic, Luciferian, draconian, whatever you want to call it, the world out there that is the, the evil politics, the child molestation, the blood drinking, the blood sacrificing, the child sacrificing, all of these people, they take it so seriously that they are worshiping their pagan gods like with all their heart, mind, and soul. And us Christians, we're like, ah, I'm having fun in life right now. I, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday or whatever, but that's all I'm going to do. But they seem to live out their Christianity more. How about Islam? An absolute false religion in every way, shape, and form, yet they live their religion out better than most Christians do. Mormons, an absolute false religion. And yet it seems like they live out their religion better than we do. Jehovah Witnesses, same thing. I mean, we could go on and on and on. How about even friends? Do you know, I find it interesting that um, oftentimes, I know people who really aren't in the church, and they have friends that are so loyal to them that they're probably some of the deepest, dearest friends a guy could have. And yet in the church, we can't seem to get along to save our lives. What's wrong? Why is it that the world seems to get it more than those who are closest to Jesus? I think that's part of it. Satan knows. And so, yeah, he makes you as comfortable as you can when you're not close to him. When you're close to him, he attacks and he wants to tear you apart. This is exactly what Scripture does tell us, that the devil is roaming around seeking whom he can destroy or devour. And so, this is why we in the flesh cannot live without the Spirit, because we will destroy one another. We will have bitterness, we're going to have gossip, we're going to, because Satan is behind all of it. So, I just thought, you know, that's... That's interesting. It's something we need to take to heart that we do not battle with flesh and blood, but with principalities, the powers of darkness. 
that when we have issues with people, we need to realize this is not flesh and blood. This is not the problem. The problem is spiritual. And we need to fight this spiritually. So, for whatever that's worth, I just find, find that interesting here. Goes on in verse 6, So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. They set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and always, why do we need to worry about getting a new job, paying a bill, um, losing a loved one? Uh, you know, am I going to have food next week? Is my cancer going to be healed? I mean, we could go on and on and on. Now, don't take me wrong in saying that we have a name it, claim it faith. We're going to come to that. You still have a responsibility. All right, we're going to come back to that. But for now, I want you to understand that God had compassion on these people. He will have compassion on you. And you must not give up hope. Don't lose your loyalty, you might say. So we're going to jump to Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 5. He said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on this journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He'll answer from within and say, Don't trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I can't rise up and give to you. Continues, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him, because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Again, I'm not talking about name it, claim it, but you can't ignore these verses either. God says, you knock, it will be open. Seek, you will find. He doesn't say, seek, and maybe you're going to find it. Knock, and we'll see if I open it. We have to pray without ceasing. I think it's Thessalonians that talks about that. Pray without ceasing, it says. That means that we pray in faith. We may not know how he's going to answer, when he's going to answer, but he is going to answer. It might be differently than what you were expecting it to be and probably not in the same time you were expecting it to be. And maybe the answer is no because he knows more than you do and it's for your benefit, but he's going to answer. And if it comes to seeking him, he's not going to turn his back on you if you're seeking God. It's that plain. But because of his persistence... Now, I can guarantee you in the wilderness when they were walking around for three days, day number one, maybe they tolerated it. Day number two, they lost their persistence. Maybe they were calling out to God, you know, help us, you know. Day number two comes around and it's like, God, come on. And by day number three, they have lost their persistence and only complain. 
I think that a lot of times God doesn't answer our prayers right away because he wants us to be persistent. I think I've talked about this before in other studies, but bottom line, I can tell you so many times where I am patient and I am patient and I am patient, so patient, and then it snaps. And I lose it. And almost immediately after that, within hours to you know, just a little bit of time a day, the problem is solved. It's just like he was waiting and waiting, but I gave up too soon. Don't give up. We have to have that attitude. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to lose this. I'm willing to lose it all. If that's what it means for me not to lose my end of it. It's a strengthening. We learn from those things too. Those lessons are hard to learn sometimes, but I mean, again, I can tell you so many times when I've lost it and then I'm back, you know, not long after that saying, I'm sorry, God. You know, I'm telling myself, if I'd have just waited a little longer without blowing up or whatever the case might be. Verse 11 continues, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is important because you're also getting some context here. He wasn't just talking about bread, you know, the wonder bread. The context is, is are you asking for the Spirit of God? It's the Spirit that gives peace, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, you know, all of these kind of things. Love, joy, peace. I'm not saying, all right, I want a new car, and I start praying for a new car, and God never gives me that. That's not the context of what he's talking about here. God knows our needs. He'll have compassion on you. But his first priority for you is not whether you get a new car, whether you have all kinds of money because he wants to bless you because you're a Christian as this theology that's out there that I think is outright demonic it teaches. That you're a Christian and therefore God wants to bless you, therefore you will be rich. Abraham was rich. You know, David was rich. Solomon was rich. And therefore, see, these are all examples. You too can be rich. You just have to believe or give enough money to the church and God will give it back to you or, you know, all of those lies. Yes, there's truth in it, but it's a twisted, a twisted truth making it a lie. And what God cares most about is not the car, it is your relationship with Him and that you have the Holy Spirit, that deposit guaranteeing your salvation, as Hebrews or Ephesians talks about. That's what we should be concerned about more than anything is our relationship with Him, not the kingdom we try building here. And so many of our prayers are even about that. Now, again, don't take me wrong here. Don't let the pendulum swing too far to the other way. But when I, you know, was a teacher and a principal, and we'd have meetings and daily devotions, day after day after day after day, the prayers were... Help so-and-so, they're having surgery. Help this guy, he's sick. Help this person, she's got cancer. Help this person, you know, help, 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 because our flesh is suffering. When we should be praying, 
help this person that through this cancer that they draw closer to you. If it be your will to heal them, wonderful. If not, Lord, let you, your name be glorified in this whole process, in their life and in the lives of those around them. That we should be praying for the salvation of people, not just their physical well-being. The same is true for Israel. How many times we pray for Israel and we, you know, pray for Israel, help them to have peace so that the, the you know, Palestinians stop bombing them or whatever the case might be. That's not what Christ wants you to pray for them for. He wants you to pray that they understand that Yeshua is their Mashiach, Messiah. That's what you should be praying for Israel for. And you know what? If they do that, I think God will take care of all their other stuff. You don't even have to worry about it. It's just like, this. Pray for their salvation to know Jesus, and he's going to have that compassion on them for all their needs. We should expect that then. Going back to Mark, Mark 140, it says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Two things that I think are very important that can be seen not only in this story but in others. The first thing that you do when you go to prayer is you humbly come before Him. Second thing is you're not making demands of God. You're not commanding God to do anything. This is one of the problems I have with the name it, claim it. We're going to command this and we're going to command that truth. And No. I'm going to give God the... the power to do what he wants to do. I'm not going to give it to him, but you know what I mean. I'm going to allow him to do his will. Okay? It is not my will that I'm commanding. It's his will that I'm allowing to him to do. Maybe not allowing him to do. I know. recognize he has the power to do what he, There you go. Recognizing that he has the power to do it. If it be your will is a big I think, important part of prayer. Now, we could get into a whole other Bible study talking about what is God's will. I, uh, in college, had a course that we kind of talked about this from a professor, and it just blew my mind because we're constantly praying, Lord, if it be your will, um, let this person be healed. Lord, if it be your will, do this. If it be your will. And I came to realize that I misuse that term a lot. If I go and just do a word search on will of God... There is only one will of God, and that is for your salvation. He desires that none should perish. His will pretty much comprises of your salvation. That's his will. So there is a difference between being willing and God's will, too. So I'm not going to get into all the semantics of that, but I think you can kind of get the idea there. But God's will... It, it's more so along this line. I hear it in funerals all the time. It was God's will to call so-and-so home. No, it was not. God's will to call someone home, no. He maybe called them home or whatever, but His will is that all men be saved. It, it's in the context of salvation. And... To say that, it's like, well, what if somebody commits suicide? Well, it was God's will to call him home. Well, we just won't say it this time because he committed suicide, right? Doesn't make sense, does it? God's will was never death. That was outside of God's will. God's will was eternal life for everybody. It's sin that brought death into the world, and that was never God's will. 
Does God allow? Yes. So again, we've got some semantics that we could dissect, but like I said, a whole different Bible study, but something for you to think about. Verse 41, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So if he was moved with compassion for this leper back then, do you think he's moved to compassion for you today? Has to be because I, the Lord, do not change. I am the same yesterday, today, and always. We should find some comfort in that. That he does have compassion on you. He knows your sorrows. He knows your hurts. He knows your needs. And he is not far off like Elijah was making fun of Baal. Where, well, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's out traveling. Yeah. What's that? Or yeah, or going to the bathroom. Yeah, it does. See, that's not God. God is a God who knows and is there. So do not give a false accusation to the character of God by thinking he has left you alone because you haven't seen your prayers answered yet. Have faith. Have faith that the bitter waters will become sweet sometime. Just keep going through the wilderness. Mark 9:17 then one of the crowd answered and said teacher i brought you my son who has a mute spirit and wherever it seizes him it throws him down he foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth and becomes a rigid becomes rigid so i spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out but they could not and then just jumping down to verse 23 jesus said to him if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes Again, watch that pendulum. Don't let it go too far one way or the other. But nonetheless, this is important that there is a requirement of faith, a requirement of believing when we pray. It, just because you believe doesn't mean you're going to get what you want, how you want it, when you want it. But let me tell you this. If you don't believe, then you can expect not to get it. In Mark 6, you might recall that Jesus went to Nazareth. And it says that he could not do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. There is an aspect of us believing and having faith for our prayers to be answered. He who doubts, okay, it talks about this, is it James, where he talks about wisdom and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously without finding fault. But when you ask, you must not doubt, because he who has doubts should not, will not receive anything from him. You should not expect to receive anything. That's a powerful verse there that ties right in to this here. So, again balance that pendulum I don't want you to think okay if I believe if I believe enough then he's going to give me exactly what I command him to give me when I want him to give it to me and how I want him to give it to me don't go that far but also you don't want to go to the other extreme and says well it's just all up to God and so I'll just pray and leave it alone and I'm not even going to think about it or what no we should go persistently 
fasting and we should do it with an expectation of the answering the prayer to be answered we cannot believe on our own that's i think a foundation of of christianity is i'm incapable of believing and doing anything without christ that's what i love about you know the passover and communion when it's berukatar nai elahenu melacha alom baore parihagafen baore comes from bara all the way back in genesis 1:1 create it's literally it says this blessed are you o lord god king of the universe who creates fruit parih from the vine god is the one who creates fruit from the vine he's the one who brings the fruit out of the vine who brings the works who brings the faith who brings all of it we could not believe without him and that's why no one can come to the to the son unless the father draws him which by the way it's kind of interesting it also says no one can come to the father except through Jesus there's that unity in the trinity again that you can't get to the father without Jesus you can't get to Jesus without the father so when we pray that's the kind of expectation we need to have faith don't give up god has not changed He hasn't forgotten about you because he is a compassionate God. Hebrews 13 verse 9 moving on now says do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines for it is good that the heart be established by grace not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. This is one of those verses oftentimes that as far as uh, people will say to me in regards to you know eating clean or unclean look we can eat anything you want because it says don't be carried away about with various strange doctrines for it's good that the heart be established by grace you're free in Christ not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them so you don't have to worry about what kind of food you eat you can eat anything you want that's how it's often taken The question is is that what he's talking about? And as you're going to see with the context and other verses, absolutely not. It's talking about the exact same thing 2 Timothy 4:3 says. It says, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables." In other words, in the end times, which is what he's talking about here, people aren't going to put up with sound doctrine. I'm telling you, we are there. You talk, you try to hold firm to sound doctrine today, you're legalistic, you're judgmental, you're unforgiving, you're whatever when we try to hold on to sound doctrine. Instead, we gather around ourselves people who say what we want to hear, our fleshly desires. And it says you'll heap them heap them up. If we're going with the doctrine of the day that is in mainstream Christianity, there's a good chance we're off somehow. 
They're going to turn their ears away from the truth. What's truth? Proverbs, I think, or Psalms says, Thy word is truth. It says, Your commandments are truth. Okay? Commandments, word, two different verses, but they're saying the same thing. God's word, it is His commandments. So, important to kind of understand that because the prosperity or word of faith movement I think is built on this very thing. What our itching ears want. The desires of our flesh. And another aspect of this I think even with the spiritual gifts. Now like I said I am not a cessationalist. I do not believe that the spirit of God has ceased. I believe in the spiritual gifts. And one of the reasons people say that it stops is there's that verse, and I can't remember, Corinthians, I believe, and it talks about where there is prophesying. Okay? Uh, it'll stop. Where there's tongues, they will cease, all of these kind of things. But the context of that is this. When you get to heaven, those are done. There will be no more need for it. It's the same thing as he goes on in Corinthians to say, faith hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Love never ends. Faith does. Hope does. As Romans says, who hopes for what he already has? When we get to heaven, there will be no hope left because it's been fulfilled and accomplished. When we get to heaven, there will be no more need for faith because faith is fulfilled, but love is eternal. And so, likewise, when the Lord comes back, prophesying will cease. There's no need for it anymore. Tongues will cease because there's no need for it anymore. Those things will cease, but not until the Lord comes back does that cease. So anyway, um, as we talk about these gifts, one of the things I want you to understand is I think that that false Holy Spirit... That's not, I'm going to say false spirit, period, because it's not holy. The unholy spirit that is false that people have, oftentimes they receive it because they're seeking the gifts with the wrong motives. They are seeking the gifts because they want power, knowledge, influence, respect. In some churches, they believe you're not saved unless you can speak in tongues. And therefore, it's like, well, I better have this so that I can prove I'm saved or else I don't fit in. In some cases, people are very vocal about their gifts because they want to have influence to lead a church, to lead the pastor, to lead congregants. In other cases, I think that they have it because it makes them feel powerful. It makes them feel a notch above others. And any of those reasons, I believe, is the devil. In John, 1 John, I think somewhere, 2 John, 3 John, one of them where it talks about all the sins in the world can be summed up in these three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the things that, you know, the boasting of what he has and does. 
And we've talked about this before, how in the Garden of Eden, Satan fell to every, or Eve fell to every one of those exact same temptations. The lust of the eyes, she saw and looked, saw that the fruit of the tree was good. The lust of the flesh, ah, she was hungry and it looked, it was good for food. And the boasting of what she, you know, has, the pride of life, she said, ah, it will give me knowledge. I will be like God. Knowing both good and evil. And in essence, I think that's what the devil does with these spiritual gifts sometimes. He says, ah, you can be godly, more godly, if you have these gifts. Not that you shouldn't desire them. The Bible says, just like you know, Caleb was reading there before, we should desire these gifts. But if you're desiring them for those motives of the flesh, that you're going to have more knowledge, you're going to be more godly, you're going to have more influence, any of those reasons, then you're setting yourself up for trouble. So don't deny the gifts, but you also need to examine why you should eagerly desire them. And the answer should be that God be glorified. Okay, that the church be edified or that, yes, you can talk to God, have that relationship you know, in a deeper way. But bottom line is, I think that that's one reason why there's so much of the unholy spirit in the church is because it has been sought out in the flesh for fleshly reasons. And we haven't tested those spirits. Bottom line, we should be seeking the image of God when we do it. Remember, we were created in the image of God. And like I said, in the Garden of Eden, the devil told Eve, you too can be like God, knowing both good and evil. So in a sense, what the devil was doing is saying, you too can have the image of God. You can be like God. And we need to understand what the image of God is. It is not knowledge. Knowing your word more. That's not the image of God. None of these things of the flesh is the image of God. Okay, Knowledge, even good or bad is not what it means to be in the image of God. To me, I think what makes you in God's image is who you are at the very core of your being. How do you know what the image of God is? His word. The commandments of God. All of that. You want to know who God is? His commandments, his word, describes the very essence of who he is. Do you remember Elijah, you know, wanted to see God too, and he, they, they pass by. He covers his face, and he says, God, Moses too, Moses is what I'm thinking there, when he says, show me your glory. And I, I tell people sometimes, if I would say, God, show me your glory, in some way I'm kind of expecting like a big light in the corner of the room to, you know, just, and I'm like, oh, 
oh, the light, it's so bright. That's not the glory of God. See, when he came, he wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He was in that small whisper. And it wasn't just because it was a whisper, but it's what he says, I am. And he begins to proclaim his, the attributes of who he is. You want to know what God's glory is? It's the very essence and core of who he is. The light, the that light is a result of his glory. Not his glory, but the result of it. And I talk about uh, in the Garden of Eden, and we always picture, because of all our pictures, that Adam and Eve were butt naked in the garden, right? I don't believe that's what it was at all. They were clothed. Just not with this kind of clothing. There are two words for naked that are used there in Genesis. One before the fall, one after the fall. Before the fall, we have arom, and it becomes erom, or vice versa. I don't remember which now. But arom and erom, very closely, the, the root is the same, but one means to be completely butt naked, and the other one means to be partially covered. The one before the fall, they were partially covered. Now, how can they be partially covered? They didn't have fig leaves. They didn't have clothes. Because of the glory that they had before the fall. The Bible tells us in Isaiah and other places that God clothes himself with light as with a garment. That light is not God's glory. That is a result of his glory. Likewise, Adam and Eve in the garden were in his image. They had the essence of who he was. They were clothed in glory. And when they sinned, that glory departed, that light was gone, and now they became absolutely naked. And they needed to have skin. See, we, there's not an accident that we are the only ones of God's creation, ultimately, that were created naked, without skins. We've got feathers, we've got skins. I know we got the naked cat, but again, that's a result of the curse too. So, okay. But the point being is God created animals with skins as a purpose, but he created you to be covered not with that. He never intended this. He intended you to have his glory. So when you are in his image, it is when you are holy. It's when you know his word. It's when you are following his word. That is being in the image of God. And as I said, his image are his commandments. The commandments aren't some legalistic rule book to get to heaven. The commandments are a reflection of the character of God. That's why we keep the commandments. Not because we're legalistic, not because we're trying to be a better Christian, but because we seek to know God. That verse, Deuteronomy, where Moses says, you know, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know yet who you will send with me. 
You have said that you are pleased with me, that you, you have found, I have found favor with you and you are pleased with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I can be saved. No, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. That's the point of the commandments. Teach me your ways so that I can know you. So that I can know your image. To know the very essence of who you are. To understand your compassion. All of those things. And, and I, I just love that. If we could just get this idea of what the church has turned the law into. This legalistic mumbo-jumbo. If that's what the law is, I agree. I don't want anything to do with it. But that's not what the law is. Going back to Hebrews 13, verse 9, it says, For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We never answered that question yet as far as what is he talking about then? Well, 1 Timothy 4.1, again, he's going to explain what this is. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Okay? You need to understand what's going on in the churches of those days in the context of what's being said to understand what's really being said. When we isolate these verses by themselves, people say, see, God got rid of those things and you eat whatever you want. There were a group called the Gnostics. Gnosis is knowledge. And they, they love knowledge. Not an accident. Here's the tree of knowledge. You want to be like God? Here's the tree of knowledge. Uh, it still goes on today. We love knowledge. Well, the Gnostics, for the most part, were all vegetarians. They refused to eat any meat of any sort. They saw it as a spiritual advantage not to to eat something that had the curse of death on it, in a sense. So they were all vegetarians. And so Timothy is addressing this here. We don't have time to dive deeper to where I can show you that that is the case. But I want you to just make that connection to what we're going to be talking about here. That the Gnostics had that belief that they were more spiritual that even though God had created meat to be eaten with thanksgiving, that we see history is littered with people addressing this topic. There's this, uh, not a book necessarily, but this letter against the Nazareans. And it says, and so... Though they were Jews who kept all the Jewish observances, they would not offer sacrifice or eat meat. In their eyes, it was unlawful to eat meat or make sacrifices with it. 
This is a guy named Epithenius writing against these Gnostics, telling you what they believed. He also, we see there's this part against the Ebionites, another Gnostic group. And they say, and again, the Lord himself says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He did not simply say Passover, but this Passover, so that no one could play with it in his own sense. A Passover, as I said, was meat roasted with fire and the rest. Okay, God told him, this is how you do Passover, you have sacrifice lamb. But to destroy deliberately the true passage, these people, these Ebionites, have altered its text which is evident to everyone from the expressions that accompany it, and represented the disciples as saying this, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he supposedly saying, Did I really desire to eat this meat, or to eat meat at this Passover with you? In other words, he's saying they changed the Bible to say, rather than I've eagerly desired to eat this, he said, Did I really want to eat meat at Passover? Therefore, we're supposed to be vegetarians. Now, we see this kind of thing going on in churches today in just a variety of doctrines. But nonetheless, like I said, the first century is riddled with this idea. It is not this kind of abstract idea that's out there. It's everywhere. It was such a common big deal. And when you're reading these verses in the New Testament, you need to know that because otherwise you've got contradictions in the Bible. Why is Peter all upset? No, Lord, I would never got that. I, I've only eaten clean food. If Jesus had taught them it was okay to eat unclean food, he wouldn't have been surprised. Among, I don't want to make that this, the topic tonight. My point is, we'll look at those some other time, all these verses that are in question. But my point is, is that's not. You'd have contradictions. The point is vegetarianism. So when it looks here in Hebrews 13.9, some people can, will attach that. That's not the context fully here either, but kind of the same root of the problem. This foods which has not profited. Well, what he's saying here is actually taking us back to chapter 9 of Hebrews, of which we've already talked about. Chapter 9, verse 8 said, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, the most holy place of the temple, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, the physical temple versus the spiritual temple. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service, the priests, perfect in regard to the conscience. They had to make sacrifices year after year after year. They could never be, have a clear conscience of sin like we can now because of Yeshua, our high priest. And then verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. The context here in chapter 9 is the Day of Atonement. The sacrificial animals are these foods and drinks in various washings, these fleshly ordinances that he said were going to pass away because Yeshua now is a better sacrifice that will take away the guilty conscience, that does take away all the sin once for all, not on a day-to-day -day basis. 
He's comparing that. So now when you go back to Hebrews 13, verse 9, when it says the heart is to be established by grace, he's not talking about cheap grace and getting rid of the law. He's talking about Yeshua. The same thing chapter 9 was talking about, saying there's a new high priest in town. There's a new most holy place. You in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Okay, that heart is established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Occupied meaning in the temple day after day, you know, serving. And it goes on, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So again, he's taking you to the temple. This has nothing to do with clean and unclean food. This has everything to do with the sacrificial meat. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. This is explicitly talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the sacrifices made there. So again, this verse by itself can be taken out of context by many in the church to mean things that it doesn't mean. So, the heart is established by grace, not with food, not with sacrifices. Remember what he was saying about a good conscience? Okay, those animals that the priests were offering could not give them a clear conscience, couldn't relieve them from a guilty conscience. But we, by the grace of Jesus, now have a clear conscience. And it says that it does not profit those occupied by them. When we have Jesus, we're not occupied by that anymore either. We're free. We're free. The old sacrifice is gone. And it goes on, therefore Jesus also, just like that sacrifice was taken outside, outside of the camp, says, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify, make holy, the people with his own blood, not the blood of animals, suffered outside the gate. He's comparing Jesus. He's already done so with Jesus to the high priest. Now he's making Jesus compared to that animal that was sacrificed. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So, the food is talking about these sacrifices of Yom Kippur. Um, this altar, while others went to the physical altar, we are to go to the altar of Christ. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this altar because I can say the altar of Christ, but I don't want you to confuse this. This is something I was thinking about driving home here the other night. Jesus is not the altar. He is the food placed on the altar. 
Now you may say, well, what's that matter? Because I think we have the idea sometimes that we bring gifts to the altar, our good works, our tithe, whatever it might be. And so we give that stuff on the altar because we give it to God. It's gone on the altar. Now it's holy. It's pure, right? Well, that's kind of, I'm going to jump back to this, but remember Matthew 23, 16? Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. It says, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So here he's saying the gift isn't the special thing. The altar is the special thing. When you put that gift on the altar, it's the altar that makes that gift holy. Okay? So going back to this verse, what I want to make, I guess this is kind of what I was thinking about anyway. I think it was last week that I was talking about Solomon when he is dedicating the temple. It gives the, the, the dimensions of the altar that the sacrifices were made on, this huge thing. And then in front of it, he has a platform that's the exact dimensions of the altar in the tabernacle. And he stands on it. It's also made of bronze, just like the one in the temple. He stands on that platform, raises his hands up, and praise to God. In essence, offering, offering himself, a picture I think of Jesus on the altar, himself offering him, himself as a holy and pleasing offering to God. So, what I am trying to get across with that, that I haven't kind of come around with the full explanation is this. Our tithe our gifts, whatever it might be, our good works, that's not what God desires. That gift in of itself means nothing unless it's the altar that makes the gift holy. In other words, my tithe given out of compulsion my good works given out of works righteousness. Any of that, if it's coming from a, a contaminated altar, it's not pure, it's not holy. We have become in a sense, uh, the holy place. In a sense, the altar is our heart. And therefore, what God wants is that when I give because of love for God, that's now the altar that makes that gift pure. I'm trying to kind of explain what was just running through my mind, and I don't know if I'm getting doing a very good job of it or not, but when I think that I'm pleasing God because I'm tithing, I'm not, if that's what I, th I think. It needs to be a living sacrifice of my heart. In other words, a desire to give, a desire to do good, and kind of making this come full circle then, 
It's the same thing with the commandments. If I am keeping the commandments because I think I'm pleasing God, or if I'm you know, proving my, my Christianity, or any other reason, it's a contaminated altar. We should have a desire to obey the commandments of God because it is who we are. The image of God. And from the heart will come out the good deeds. Remember, we've talked about Ron, our, my Jewish friend there, you know. He says, I don't, we don't use the word law. It's way of life. And I think that's connecting those things here. I don't obey God's commandments. People think I'm legalistic because I teach the commandments, because I say we should obey God's word. And they say, oh, that's legalism. You're free in Christ now, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, you don't get it. I'm not trying to be a good Christian. I am trying to lay my life down on the altar and I am doing these things because I love God and I am walking it's just a way of life. It's who He has made me now. I'm not trying to get or earn anything. I'm just living out Christ. The Word and commandments of God. Yeah, that widow's mite is a perfect example of she had given more than all the rest who had given more. From the world's perspective, from the way the church has made the law today, the Pharisees would be more godly. And Jesus is saying, no, what comes, the gift must come from the pure altar. Like I said, Jesus, the, the cross was not the altar. Jesus was the altar. What his love for us on that cross, his willingness to die on that cross because he loved us, that is the altar. So, in a sense, I'm saying our heart is the altar, just like that widow's might. The gift was made holy because of the altar of her heart, out of love for God. The Pharisees, like you said, the Pharisees, they kept the law better than anybody else. And God said they are a brood of vipers. Why? Because the altar was unclean. It wasn't making their gift clean then. So I think that's a huge distinction that has to be made. That the altar is what makes the gift holy. And so when we offer from our heart our obedience, that's making the work itself pleasing to God. Romans 6. 23, no, wages of sin is death. It says anything done apart from faith is sin. That's why I said I could help an old lady across the street and that could be sinful if it's not coming from a pure altar, a holy altar. But if I help an old lady across the street because I'm truly just loving her, not expecting to get paid, not expecting for somebody to see what a nice guy I am, not any of those things, same exact work completely different response and result. When it says, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, 
which have not profited those. That's what it's saying. Our heart, our altar is established by Yeshua. Not by these things that don't profit us. Not by these worldly sacrifices. But by the very image and essence of God coming out of our hearts. In our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. So we go outside of the camp to Yeshua, to that grace, not in this physical, but in the spiritual world. All right. We'll close in prayer.